Now, Carol Mann introduces another inspiring lecture in My Matters. Good morning and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of bridge talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today we'll look into world geopolitics and global governance, with the ongoing two wars, one regional and one for now local, but has the risk of going regional in Ukraine and also in Gaza. Not to mention the civil war in Yemen and tensions flaring up in the South China Seas. Professor Brian Wong, the associate professor of philosophy at HKU, has hosted a panel discussion with Professor Zhang Yan, the associate professor of international relations at Nagata University in Japan. Dr. Michael Wurst, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and Professor Fan Xiaolai, the dean of School of Advanced International and Area Studies. And the director of Center for Russian Studies at East China Normal University, they were invited for the panel discussion organized by HKU's Center on Contemporary China and the World (CCCW), entitled "In the Age of Security: Geopolitics and Global Governance." So, given all of these conflicts and tensions that we see at present, maybe we can just start with uh, Dr. Wurz、uh, with you, because you you highlighted、uh, in your corresponding remarks with me that you'd like to talk about or really reflect upon the the efficacy of the end of history thesis and whether or not we are really witnessing and have witnessed the end of history. So, what are we to make of the world today? Where's history gone, and is it even a useful question to ask? There, let me just say. Something for as somebody that grew up in Germany and has spent the last twenty-one years in the United States, so I live somewhere in between those two continents, and、um, I am very much uh, uh, trying to th- rethink the end of the Cold War and the thesis back then, which I still vividly remember, was more than a thesis of the end of history, but a political conviction and a collective feeling in Europe and in the United States that the West had won the Cold War.、Um, The future of globalization would be the globalization of the liberal international order, and as a result, Western societies did not have to change because they had won and they had done everything right. Nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, rereading Fukuyama's book, I think he saw something. There was a historical rupture indeed happening in 1989 and 1990, and it was the end of history. But he was a hundred eighty degrees wrong, because it was the end of history as the West knew it, and that's an ex- important、uh, distinction. And I feel this is、uh, an important moment to、um, reconfigure the notion that、uh, Western societies didn't realize that the Berlin Wall actually fell down into Western direction because of the pressure from the East, and Westerners couldn't lean against that wall in the notion of. Political and moral and economic superiority. So that was an illusion that had tangible geopolitical impacts, and that's why I think,、uh, with regard to the question of this session, we have to think of how people in society and politics perceive global、uh, transformations, and at the same time talk about what is really happening in the global arena. And I think it is important that、um, that notion that the West had won and ne- didn't need to change. 
carried on for at least 10, 15 years. The first rupture was 9-11, the terrorist attacks in New York and Washington. And I feel the second big rupture was the year 2008. The economic crisis, Baron Stearns going belly up, Ukraine taking over Crimea, Barack Obama getting elected in the United States, a candidate that defied the Republican, but also the Democratic Party establishment. And I feel that 2008 was a pivot year that indicated that actually things had changed, but we were not yet ready to uh, uh, recognize that because we were still stuck in that very comfortable Cold War era. And I remind you, there was also an institutional search. We established the G8, then we kicked out the Russians for bad behavior, then it became the G7, then the G20 uh, developed. So even in institutional forms, there is a search going on for new ways to institutionalize an order that we didn't fully understand at that point. And this is a dramatic transformation because I remind you, in October 1986, two elderly gentlemen met in Reykjavik on Iceland and signed an R or agreed to an arms treaty that de facto ended the Cold War. Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. These were two people that basically said, we're going to completely change the world. And the astonishing thing is, it worked. If today we had all the presidents and prime ministers and defense ministers and foreign affairs ministers of all G20 countries make that same decision and say, we are going to change the world, it's very unlikely that this would work. So we are indeed in a new situation. And one takeaway is that the Pax Americana, the 20th century uh, of the United States, has changed, for better or for worse. You might have different opinions about that. I just would like to remind you, because of in the previous panel, uh, my feeling was that there was more a caricature of America than American reality being presented. That A, the United States never became a global power because it wanted to or because it was an imperial outreach. The United States occupied the Pacific because it got attacked by the Japanese and it occupied Europe because of the German Nazis trying to conquer the entire continent. That was not a strategic decision that was made in Washington, quite to the contrary. Washington was reluctant to either engage in the Pacific or the Atlantic. And as a result, the United States in the 20th century, with its massive economic growth, became a global power. And I feel a, a country that, at least in the Biden administration, I'm not talking for the Trump administration here, but in, in, in enlightened democratic administrations, has had tremendous, highly differentiated, complex approaches to global affairs. So I think the idea to say the United States is just dumb, doesn't understand, uh, doesn't understand China is doing what they want. I get it. It sometimes looks like it. It sometimes is reality, but it's an under-complex description of what is happening in the United States. It's also an under-complex description of what is happening in Europe. So I think um, I would just forewarn people to enter premature celebrations. Uh, Sergei Lavrov a while ago said, we now really have a competition of ideas and the end of American globalization. And that's good for Russia because Russia and the rest of the world are surging and the West is declining. Um, my feeling is that if you feel that if you are a friend of Russia, that you will be on the winning side of history five or 10 years from now, you certainly live in a different world than I do, but we can happily discuss this. But I would just say, the narrative that the West is declining and the rest is surging, and it's not only Russia or China, it's also India, South Africa or Brazil, 
that narrative, I think, has relatively high potential to become the same illusion as the Europeans and the Americans were under the illusion that they had won the Cold War. You're listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Dr. Michael Wurst telling us some of his views on global geopolitics. Next, Professor Zhang Yan and Professor Fan Xiao Lai will share with us their thoughts on Northeast Asia's governance. Just like to turn over to you,、uh, Professor Zhang, and talk a bit about you know Northeast Asia because we covered concepts of historical grievances, right? Professor Wang mentioned a need to set aside historical differences to find realistic and pragmatic solutions, and your You know, you've been watching the Northeast Asian Peninsula, the Korean Peninsula, but also Japan and China, in the context of Sino-American and also Sino-Northeast Asian relations, quite closely over these years. Now, quite recently, we saw at Camp David a U.S.-led attempt and initiative to broker, you know, a tightening up of the triangle between Seoul, Washington, and Tokyo, right, in relation to collaboration and also conversations and dialogues between these three parties. What do you think? Explained this pivot and this shift in foreign policies of Korea and Japan, such that these historically opposed, you know, rivals and foes,、uh, conjoined with a history of bloodshed, are now talking to one another and treating one another as if they could be strategic partners. Is this merely an illusion, or is this a genuine reorientation in their foreign policies? Over to you, Professor. Thank you very much,、uh, Professor Wang.、Uh, let me share you with us an interesting episode. Last night we had we had a, a, some some guests with us. We had dinner, and uh, uh, that dinner reminded me that well, we are international political politics experts, and we have been always criticized as a soft science in social sciences by who legal experts or law professors. Economics, or even historians, they criticize you are too soft. You are fortune te- tellers only. <laughs> so I will try my best uh, uh, today to be relevant.、Um, I, I but I think we also have some flexibilities, even though we are soft probably, but、uh, we can、uh, flexible. Especially I think uh, the uh, geopolitical dynamics and the great power relationship. Integration—they are all important and impact all the aspects in our lives as well. So, please allow me to introduce my、uh, expertise first. I have been working on perception and misperception theories for more than two decades.、Uh, I mean, empirically, I work in two fields. One is U.S.-China-Japan trilateral relations and East Asia regional integration. So I spent、uh, many times in Japan, in the U.S., and also last year I was very fortunate、uh, in Berlin and had a European view.、Um, so、uh, because of time restraint,、uh, I just want to share with you、um, my、uh, recent research—not、uh, um, results, but <clears throat> maybe that uh, uh, some products I have been done. I think now we have、uh, two opposite.、Uh, Uh, conceptualization of security. Now we are talking about two wars ongoing. One war in Ukraine, one war in、uh, between Palestinian and Israel. Now it's time for us to refigure and、uh, reconceptualize the very much fundamental、uh, term called security.、Uh, 
para security. But unfortunately, I have been witnessing the rise, rapid rise in the past two decades, the so-called deterrence-based security concept. Yeah, uh, uh, related to the Professor Wang's questions, a David, uh, David uh, Accord declaration, a US-Japan alliance or other alliance system in this region. And if you scheme there, the words, the term, term, terminology they used in the declarations, you see, deterrence, deterrence, all deterrence. Deter for what? <laughs> and, uh, but I think we forget we ever had a very good tradition. Um, and I have to thank our European colleagues. Actually, you created the Helsinki Accord. The Helsinki Accord, the pillar of the Helsinki Accord is based on intellectual basis of cooperative security. I, I started my first book called uh, The Logic of Weak in International Politics that focus on ASEAN's relationship with four powers in the region. And I interviewed a lot of policymakers then. And they told me they got inspiration from you. From CSIS. <laughs> yeah, by CSIS. Uh, uh, and I, I went to Geneva last year and I talked with a very high official as well. And finally, he told me that we Europeans, we forgot the concept of corporate security. So I think it is time for us to re-memorize uh, or re revive the concept of cooperative security. We need more dialogue. This goes to my fine point about uh, the rule of Hong Kong. Why are we getting here? What kind of role Hong Kong can can can? can play, especially for Hong Kong U and uh, Professor Lee's a new center can do to facilitate the revival of this kind of uh, uh, very concept of uh, corporate security. Firstly, I think uh, Hong Kong and Hong Kong U and also the center can play a very important role as an intellectual hub, intellectual hub to uh, provide intellectual contribution to revive this kind of cooperation, tradition of dialogue, consensus building. We had great achievements in the 1990s for preventive diplomacy and others. And secondly, I think Hong Kong, of course everybody knows Hong Kong is a financial hub and a business center in Asia. But I think I, maybe uh, I'm too aggressive or too ambitious. Hong Kong can do more. Why not Hong Kong become a hub for regional dispute uh, Mediation and uh, offer uh, some kind of this kind of dialogue or political role, uh, facilitate some political dialogue in the in, in in Hong Kong. And finally, I think I propose Hong Kong can be a the hub, a hub of practice, hub of practice. Why I say that today in the morning we had uh, my friend come here. He is in charge of an in international organization preparatory office director, Doctor. Sun Jing he is all, uh, is uh, doing preparation for an international organization for mediation. Mm. The abbreviation is IMO. And I think it's a very good initiative to make Hong Kong as a hub of practice, especially in diplomatic affairs as well. We need more mediation. We need more dialogue. We need more concepts building in international relations. I stop here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Zhang. You know, I've always been called a Hong Kong bull, and I'm glad to hear that there are two bulls in on this panel at the very least, so I'm not alone here. Uh, on that, though, we'll return to Hong Kong later, but just before we do so, you know, it's interesting you mentioned a deterrence-based versus cooperation-based conceptions of international security, because I'd like to sort of invite Professor Feng and also, you know, Dr. Words here to, to weigh in on this particular 
through Harrison or juxtaposition. And there's a very live case study we look at, which is the ongoing war in Ukraine and more generally speaking, Russia's relationship with its neighbors ever since perhaps the early 2000s. And I was wondering, you know, what do you make of the the view that I guess Professor Zhang was hinting at, right, where had there been more attempt to cooperate or accommodate as opposed to resorting to purely deterrence? Um, or alternatively, that there wasn't enough deterrence against, you know, Russian movement and aggression, that one way or the other, that was how the violence and the conflict we see today, you know, really resulted from strategic missteps. So very quickly, I was wondering, Professor Fung, what do you make of this this application of this principle? And then after that, Dr. Wurz, in that order. So over to you first. When we uh, talk something about the reality, the whole job, Political the situation, I think uh, 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 the problem is that uh, now, for example, we face uh, not only the conflict between the Hamas and Israel, uh, not only Ukraine and Russia's war, and also potential closer straight uh, uh, conflict, and even the dynamic situation on the peninsula. Sometimes uh, the word idea. Uh, into in my 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 hand that uh, what means the war what means conflict because one thing uh one phenomenon i'd like introduce uh, audience that uh, for example uh last two near two years when the ukraine ukraine crisis happened uh i find that uh, never i saw such kind of the strong debates on the war, on the origins, uh, the reasons, the process, the uh, implications, anything else. Even the business companies, the institutions, uh, even the family, when different generations sitting on the table to have the dinner, the debates started. Never, I don't know, in Shanghai, in Beijing, we can face such kind of situation. I don't know, in Hong Kong, maybe maybe more more uh, stabilized so the question is what does it mean because i think that contemporary war maybe that is not a traditional military operation that is very complicated phenomenon which not only related uh, the geopolitical the situation but also related the civilization rising and decline and also, uh, I think the face is so complicated uh, ideological the landscape. Uh, so uh, that such kind of situation uh, uh, rise requirement for us that we should consider uh, uh, that uh, situation from not only the single dimension. We should uh, from the uh, more. The, Multiple the dimensions. For example, uh, one case I'd, I'd introduce that uh, uh, roughly 12 years ago when I um, had been in Yaroslav. Uh, that time, uh, Zbigniew Bozinski, uh, he delivered the report. Uh, last of some of the sentence of his report, he, he, he said that now time is coming that means uh, Northern America, uh, Russia, Western Europe, and Scandinavia, we should uh, work together as uh, Northern uh, planet democratic community. 
after his reports, when we go into re restaurant, they start dinner. He asked me that, Professor, you from China, you come down from China. What do you think about my idea? My answer is that uh, you, you, you are today. You are talking is a little, little bit more complicated. Why? I say, uh, you mean uh, northern uh, some of the countries you should organize as a democratic community, and uh, others countries uh, which just in practice to learn a democracy. How do you want to treat it with such kind of countries? Okay. Brzezinski answered me that, you know, 2007, I raised ideas about the G2. You couldn't accept. So now I give you other idea that you, that means China, you can uh, cooperate with, for example, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Turkey, India, Iran. You can organize others' group. Then I answer the question to him that, do you think the world divided, a particular Eurasian continent divided to a group? You think it will be a tragic, the biggest and the terrible confrontation? Last words, speak near. Gozinski uh, told me that, okay, today's talk is uh, simply private conversation. We will not uh, <laughs> uh, spread to any the media or such kind of thing. Okay. This is uh, only a small piece of the mm. talk, but uh, I think uh, this, uh, this talk, this conversation just reflect some things, for example, uh, now the, the world, uh, possibly divided not, not only Western and East, but also the Southern. So situation com more complicated than early. So just by this reason, I think we should be very, very cautious to, to, to deal with such kind of not only geopolitical, but also governor issue. Thank you, Professor Feng. I think what you highlight today is the perils of having an excessively simplistic overlay of ideological binaries or categorization where you classify countries into either autocracies or democracies and to assume that these camps and trench lines are well-formed and then to build coalitions of deterrence around that. I don't know if you agree with that view that Dr. Wurz, and I was wondering what you can say on that. Uh, no, no, I don't. I think um, also uh, with regard to uh, my own government in, mm. in the United States, the, uh, the, the the attempt to talk about democracies versus autocracies, it's kind of, it's, a, it's an intellectual crutch. Mm. There is some truth to it, but if you ask me, the biggest autocratic threat to the United States is not China or Russia, it's uh, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and uh, the autocratic tendencies that we have in our own country. But you have asked about the deterrence question with regard to the Russian invasion in Ukraine, and I think it's an interesting question. I think deterrence did not work and would not have worked because you have a dual conflict to a degree that you have a mid-20th military conflict and early 21st century global geopolitical implications. 
to send 180,000 soldiers in very badly organized tank columns into a country is something that you cannot stop short of uh, the use of tactical nuclear weapons, which, thank God, was never an option. At the same time, the Russian invasion shows, and we have learned this the hard way in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and if you will, in, in Vietnam, that you cannot win conventional wars with heavy machinery against dedicated local defense and a population. And I think that's probably something that will also hold true uh, uh, with regard to Taiwan. The point here is that the secondary effects are interesting because thanks to the invasion, you have much greater cohesion in Europe. You have a transatlantic cooperation that has never been as strong and as concise as it has been over the last few years. And you have a dramatic strengthening of NATO. But this conflict is also interesting because of its secondary effects. Let me give you one example. The Ukraine invasion <clears throat> had impacts, as you all know, on the global food markets that were not only interesting in terms of the extensiveness, but also in terms of the velocity. You had hours after the invasion, wheat futures spiking at the commodity exchange in Chicago. You had export bans in countries being passed through parliaments only weeks after the invasion. As a result, the number of people that are starving worldwide, that are hungry, went up to 800 million people. If only 10% of those people don't survive, that's one and a half times the number of people that died in the Second World War. So you have a relatively contained battlefield in Ukraine with a high number of victims, but comparably, comparatively speaking, the impact geopolitically is much broader. All the way to China, you guys over the last 20 years have increased food imports by an average on 11.5% a year. And because of changing eating habits, people consuming more lactate products, more meat, that will only, that pressure will only increase in China. So the Ukraine invasion has had immediate impact on food security and food prices in China. And that you can document that. At the same time, and I've lived this firsthand because I move a lot between Washington and Berlin, particularly the support of the Chinese government for Russia has led to a depreciation of the brand of China, especially in Europe, that had immediate impact in terms of reduced foreign direct investment in China. So it's interesting that you have a huge complexity of concentric circles of impacts and at the same time a war that is by and large still being fought with uh, weapons that were used uh, in the Second World War. Thank you, Dr. Wurz. Now, one argument that I made uh, briefly in a book I'd written, actually, was that the more closely America and Europe come together in the eyes of China and Russia, the more China and Russia would feel that the one another would make for natural strategic partners, albeit not allies. And that would in turn, again, compel Washington and Brussels to move closer to one another. So that's the sort of conjecture I have concerning a cycle there. Going back to the question of Hong Kong, Professor Zhang, you shared your thoughts. Any final comments and recommendations from our other two panelists, Dr. Wurz and also Professor Feng, very, very quickly on how Hong Kong can remain relatively neutral, intact and sane amidst an era of unprecedented geopolitical upheaval. So turning over to you, Dr. Wurz, thank you. Um, what you do in Hong Kong, you have to decide by yourselves. That's not for me to judge. I can only say I greatly enjoy the opportunity uh, to learn as much as I did today. This was really uh, a universal um, seminar on uh, status quo of China. Let me just end with one observation, if I may. Um, 
looking at the day-to-day, -day, I must say China is rightly pretty happy with itself um, and pretty convinced that it's all, by and large on the right track. Maybe missed the footnote of the uh, of the economic situation that was uh, that was it was the only panel where there was really like a little bit of introspection in terms of China. Um, let me just end on this thought. You have um, heard Mr. Thornton here being very very critical of his own government. Um, the moment I see a top notch Chinese business executive on a panel in Washington and say, like Mr. Thornton did, my president is not really doing the right job. His government doesn't really understand uh, the United States. I think they're really off track and they're also investing in the wrong uh, regional conflicts and they're doing damage uh, to the Chinese people. The moment I see that, I think we're one step further in terms of having a conversation uh, of China as a superpower, which is so in such complex manners integrated in the world that this also requires uh, a, a certain degree of introspection that uh, opens up spaces for conversations that are self-critical. Um, we're doing this in the United States and that's good. The Europeans are doing it to different degrees, still committing a lot of mistakes, but I think that would be the next step of a productive conversation. If that can happen here in Hong Kong, fine. If not, um, we still have time to move forward. That was a panel discussion organized by HKU's Center on Contemporary China and the World. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters.